we'll want to play a little game at the beginning here. Um, did, you, did you know? So I'm testing your knowledge of some facts here. Mike Hutzel, you don't get to play. Uh, you have too many letters after your name. Um, did you know that atoms, which we're all made up of and everything is made up of, are mostly empty space? Like 99.999999% empty space. Scientists tell us if you were to remove all of the empty space from the atoms that make up every single human being on earth, the entire world population of what, 7.6 billion people, you could fit everything left in the, about in the space of an apple. That's crazy. Did you know, some of you may know this, that honey will never, ever spoil? This means that you could conceivably eat 5,000-year-old honey and not get sick, if it's in a sealed container, obviously, of some kind, nothing else in there. Did you know that a head full of human hair is strong enough to support 12 tons? Not my hair, but an average human head of hair. I could maybe support 12 pounds if it was long enough. But weight for weight, hair is as strong as Kevlar, which is what they use to make bulletproof vests. These are very random facts. These are facts that are fully supported by what my research on the internet. Um, but they're hard to believe. They're hard for us to believe. And that brings us to our text this morning. There, there were, as we've been seeing, as we're walking through this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, there were some believers in Corinth in the Corinthian church who found the bodily resurrection of dead believers hard to believe. But in this case, it's not so much this intellectually, it's not so much intellectually hard to believe as, as much as philosophically hard to believe. Or maybe they just, it was undesirable to believe this because it was so contrary to everything that they believed. So Paul's defending here the doctrine of the future bodily resurrection of believers in chapter 15. He's defending it because it's being challenged, it's being ridiculed and mocked and attacked by some in the church at Corinth. And so the Bible's clear teaching, and this is Old Testament and New Testament, and certainly it's elaborated more in the New Testament, but it, we find this in the Old Testament. It's clear teaching is that not only do our souls go to, be with, uh, go to be with the Lord in heaven when we die, but our bodies will one day be raised from the grave. And so they will be raised and transformed and glorified at Christ's second coming and reunited with our souls so that as believers, we, we will be in heaven, body and soul, forever. That's the clear, clear, compelling teaching of Scripture. And so Paul has argued that because Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead and we are in Him, so too we will be raised bodily as well. That's the crux of his argument in this chapter here and so but his opponents they're not easily deterred they 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 this teaching to them seems to be absurd and unpalatable and so you see this in their questions there as, as Luke read just a moment ago in verse 35 but someone will ask and when he says that someone he's not saying like there might be someone out there in this whole wide world who will think to ask a question like this that's not what he's saying. They're, these are questions that some of them are asking. And they're not like honest questions. Like I, I realize we, someone just before this message came up and said, I've got a question I'm going to call you about later this week. And, and uh, a kind of a theological uh, 
about a passage and how these things relate. Those are honest questions that we ought to be asking all the time. That's not what this is. These are, we know from the context, these, are, these questions are cynical, they're snarky, they are, they are intended to get at Paul, they're intended to attack, the, attack this teaching of the resurrection of Christ. And so they're, they're making fun of, the, of a bodily resurrection, much like people to do, do today. And so he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Oh, sure, Paul. Resurrection of the body? Are you crazy? Well, just, just answer me this, Paul. Riddle me this, Paul. How can a body, a new glorious body, like you're saying, how can that come from a rotting corpse? It's crazy. How, you're being ridiculous. And, and this resurrection body that you're so convinced we're going to get one day, what's that going to be like? But notice, this is how they're, they're saying, you're being foolish, Paul. But Paul completely turns the tables on him in verse 36. You see that? And he calls them fools. You foolish person. That's a little muted in the ESV. It's just simply, you fool. You fool. Now, the word for fuel, fuel, fool, you see who the fool is. Uh, that, that doesn't, this word for, for fool, why is that hard to say all of a sudden? But uh, it's not implying that they have a, a low IQ or something like that. That's not, that's not his point. This, this word, it's someone who, who willful, willfully hasn't considered God's perspective on a subject. They're ignoring, they're setting aside what God says, and that's, that's the fool. So whenever we embrace the, the philosophy of the age, whether in that age, that Corinthian age, or our age, whenever we embrace that, instead of bowing before truth, before God's truth, before the only truth, we're acting foolish. So he says to them, you, you are the real fools here. And then he sets out to correct their foolishness. And so he wants to set them straight. And he does so by highlighting these three themes that we're going to focus on, our time, focus on in our time together this morning. In verses 36 to 41, we see resurrection and creation. And then we're going to see in verses 42 to 44, resurrection and transformation. And then we'll see resurrection and redemption. And so you, we'll come back to that. But Paul, listen, what he's not doing here is making some mountain out of a molehill, as we would say. He's not overinflating the, the seriousness of this issue. He, this, isn't just some, this isn't just about Paul wanting them to agree with him uh, and, and his little pet doctrine that really has no bearing on life now. This is just some little thing that Paul's obsessed with right now. That's not it. No, Paul cares so much about this that he's correcting them, and he cares so much because he knows there's so much at stake if we relax our grip on this truth. And so let's go... Let, let, let go of this precious truth and the grounds of our hope become really shaky. This isn't some obscure, irrelevant doctrine. Clearly, this flows right from the gospel, which is rooted in what? The empty tomb, resurrection. And this resurrection hope, he's saying to us, is ours now in Christ and nobody can take that away. And don't let anybody rob you of that joy. And my prayer is that for us today, that just as the Corinthians, this wasn't just some intellectual issue that they, they just were having trouble getting by the philosophy and the thoughts of the day. And, and, and so that's not just the, that's, that's kind of the level in which he's arguing, but the, what's at stake is that we would lose our hope and our joy that's grounded in Christ. And, and this is a precious truth that should never be taken away from us. 
We saw this last week, and we'll see it again today. So I just want us to, to, to kind of see along those lines, creation, transformation, and redemption. So first, we're going to see, look, see how creation echoes our resurrection hope. See how creation echoes our resurrection hope. So life from death. Resurrection, that's what we're talking about. It is, it is woven into the very fabric of God's creation. It's all around us. And they, this is what he's telling us to see this. We can see the echoes of this reality all over the place in this world. And so therefore, and his point in saying this, and he's going to use some examples here and some kind of illustrations of this, and his point in doing so is it, it is not unreasonable to believe in future bodily resurrection because evidence is everywhere. This is part of creation. So Paul begins by answering them with this kind of simple, obvious, everyday illustration. He's talking about seeds and plants. So look at verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Let's just pause there. So he's talking about something they all knew very well about. They lived in this agricultural society. Uh, their, their whole livelihood, their lives depended upon what? Harvest. Harvest. The miracle of harvest. You have this tiny little seed. This tiny little seed that's so precious. So precious that a farmer will guard that seed. He'll protect it through those winter months and keep it dry and keep it warm and so guard it through winter. Why? Because it's so valuable. So valuable. Why is this seed so precious? Because in that little bitty seed, there is the potential for new life. For this wonderful large plant to emerge that will, will provide food for his family. That's, that's kind of the picture here. But, but what has to happen to the seed before the new life can be seen and experienced and enjoyed? The little seed has to die, as it were. Now, we understand the science. It's not dying. The seed's not dying, but it's germinating. But it's, it, it's like death, a little seed that's so tiny in comparison to the, the plant that it produces. But, but for all intents and purposes, it looks to be dead. I mean, you, you can't. You look at a little seed, when you get a little seed pack and you plant your garden, they, they look dead. I mean, you could, you could wash off a pumpkin seed at, uh, you know, the quick trip and salt the pumpkin seed, watch all that salt off. I couldn't tell the difference, even though it's been roasted and that seed's dead. I mean, all seeds kind of look dead. And so you, you, you take that little thing and that little, that little seed is sown, it's buried in the ground. And, and through, this, through this process of, of death and burial, sowing, it becomes this living, living plant that emerges from the soil and produces good fruit. And so his point here, and this is why he's saying, his point is, death is not a hindrance to new life. It's not. Death is not an obstacle to new life. In fact, death is, is actually essential for new, transformed, more glorious life. We see this all around us. He's saying to his opponents, are saying, how can you have new life from death? That's crazy. That's absurd. Paul says, how can the farmer, how can the gardener have new life without death? In any other way. Resurrection's not weird. It's not strange. It, it has been written into the fabric of God's creation. And so we need to see this. That's what he's saying. So he goes on, verse 37. And what you sow is not, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. He's saying there, there's no, at least obvious, connection between the 
insignificant little thing you put in the ground and the big impressive plant that's going to spring from it. You, you don't see that connection when you see the seed. Sometimes like, you can't even differentiate. What, I don't know what kind of seed this is. If, if they fall out on the table, I'm like, unless it's like a kernel of corn or something. I mean, I'm struggling to, to know what goes where. Some of you probably can identify them. But you can't say, you can't say this seed is so small. This, this, this is so small. So the plant then is going to be so small. Or this seed is so weak, so the new, quote, body, this new plant is going to be weak. You, the seed is dry and insignificant, so must the plant be. Corn stalk. You get this massive corn stalk from that little bitty kernel. Little big cantaloupe vines from that little bitty seed. You know, oak trees, you know, the enormous oak trees. That little bitty acorn. Paul says you, you don't sow the body that will be. You don't plant a apple tree in the ground, you, you, under the ground. You don't bury that. You bury a little seed. You sow a little seed. But what will come from it will be much, much greater. And although every plant is very different from that, from that dead, tiny little dead-looking seed, and, and so the plant and the seed are, are very different in terms of size and appearance and, and, and fruit and color and all those things, there's also, though, real continuity between what you sow and what emerges. He says, verse 38, but God gives it a body as he's chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So you plant wheat, you get wheat. You plant, you know, oat seed, you get oats. You plant a kernel of corn, you get corn. You plant maize, you get maize. A seed produces after its own kind, but the, but the living plant that grows from that seed is greater. Now, that's a lot of talk about horticulture, and that's not Paul's focus here. <laughs> He, he's talking about our future bodily resurrection. And he's saying, though, there's a, there's a kind of death and resurrection happening all around us all the time. In every field, in every garden, anything you see that's green when you're driving home today, basically, you're, this is it. Every tree, every plant, every blade of grass out there in the field, this is saying to you and me, there's new life. There's new life. There's a springing forth from the earth. Death to life. And all of this, everything, it's an echo of our resurrection hope. It's just woven into creation. This is not unreasonable to believe this. Our bodies will die. They will be sown, as it were, buried in the ground like a little seed. But one day they will be raised and gloriously changed. That's our hope. And, so, and, it's, and notice, it's the same person... It's, we'll talk more about this, but it's the same person who comes out of the grave that went in. Same, same individual, same identity, someone you would recognize on the other side. But the form of the body is utterly transformed. And we'll see that as well. But, when, but then someone will say, this is, so he goes on in verse 39. He kind of changes the, changes the uh, example here in the illustration. He's kind of changing and highlighting a different truth. So someone's going to say, Paul, you're talking about different kind of bodies, really. You're, 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 this, isn't, this comparison doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. And he's saying, of course it does. Because we see this in creation too. Look at verse 39. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. He's just saying there are all, there are all sorts of different kind of bodies. We get that. A bird can't live in the ocean. It doesn't have the right kind of body. God has to create a different kind of body to live in the ocean, a fish body. A fish can't live on dry land. 
It has, it has the wrong kind of body, and so God creates a different kind of body to live on dry land. That's, that's kind of the illustration here. <coughs> He's just saying it's nothing new for God to make different kinds of bodies for different kinds of environments with different relative degrees of glory, impressiveness. And he goes on, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. He's just saying God, God creates all things and gives them what's appropriate, what's appropriate to its divinely given purposes. What degree of glory, and so it is with our bodies now and at the resurrection. Now it's interesting to know the order that he lists those things. I don't know if you picked up on this. We've been through Genesis not too long ago, but humans, then animals, then birds, then fish, then sun, then moon, then stars. What do we notice? That's the, that's the exact reverse order of how things happened in the days of creation. And I, I think there's, he's saying something here, and the point I think he's making is when the resurrection comes, when Jesus returns, that, that it, will not just, it will not be, as it were, just kind of an upgrade to the software of your life. It's not all it's going to be. It's just kind of a fresh, fresh coat of paint on the broken down uh, house that is yours and my life. Uh, cosmetic kind of touch-up. No, it's going to be an entire renovation, not just of your life, but of all creation. There, it will be a complete transformation of all things. That's the testimony of Scripture. Nothing will be left unchanged on that day. I just say, isn't that encouraging? <laughs> isn't that doesn't that stoke the fires of hope in your heart? It sure does mine. It's sometimes when life is really hard, and for some of you that may be today, and you're just dragged yourself into here to plop down in that chair, and you're just, you're just barely here. When your family is just fractured and falling apart, and, and there are old deep wounds that are raw and open and, and painful, when, when, when loneliness is just devouring your joy, when grief over losses is consuming you, when physical pains are just, are just oppressive in your life, when, when you are just weary and worn out and life feels like this just complete uh, sludge, this drag, in those moments it can be hard to imagine a better life to come. I mean, we can identify, I think, if we're honest at times, with the skepticism in the Corinthian church. We, we need to be reminded, though, that there's this future, glorious, wonderful future awaiting every Christian. This is our, this is our destiny. The seed, the seed of our lives will one day be sown, buried, but we will be raised and gloriously transformed with all creation. And so there's, there's hope in the gloom of our sorrow and our sadness, and this is going to be elaborated here. There's hope. Why? Because the tomb is empty, and Christ has risen, and because He lives and we are in Him, the sting of death is gone, and Christ has the victory. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is next week's message, but, but this is where He goes. And so first, we just see, see how creation See how creation echoes our resurrection hope. This is where Paul begins with them. He says, it's everywhere. You can't say this is unreasonable. It's strange. It's, 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 you can't say it's absurd. No, this hope is just written 
into the fabric of creation. It's everywhere. Second, we want to marvel at seeing these things. We want to marvel what at the transformation that's provided by our resurrection hope. Marvel at the transformation provided by our resurrection hope. So these words in verses 42 to 44, they are so powerful. And they are so precious to us, aren't they? This is why, and for good reason, that these are often read at funerals and particularly at graveside services. This is one of the go-to passages that people will read at graveside services. Because these are glorious promises. Is that body is laid in the ground. This is our hope. And so when Christ returns, these frail bodies that will die, they will be radically transformed and made suitable for this glorious new creation that's to come. This is what he says. So look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So I'm not talking about horticulture and, and these bodies for no reason. I'm talking about resurrection. And then he goes on. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, a couple things to, I want you to see in these verses. One, note the continuity. The continuity, and we've kind of touched on this already, but there's, there's continuity. You, look at in the, you see it in the verbs. What is sown is raised. So the very same thing that's sown, same body that's sown, that body is going to be raised. Our old bodies will be raised. Same person, same identity. Same Justin, same Mike, same Jerry, same person. And so our old bodies will be raised, but they will be raised greater. So it's gonna, there's continuity, but there's discontinuity. There's, very, there's much difference, Every, very, very different. Our old bodies will be raised and transformed with this radically new glory. These old, these old bodies that get sick, that age, these old bodies that are frail and fragile and prone to injury, these old bodies that hurt and ache, these old bodies that have trouble sleeping, these old bodies, here we go, these old bodies that become the focus of temptation to sin. These old, these bodies that, that are actually the instruments of sin. These bodies that have been sinned against by others. These bodies that are just weak. Weak and, and have so many limitations. These bodies will be radically transformed. This is what he's saying. You see that from perishable to imperishable. Perishable. Our resurrection bodies, they will, they will not age. They will not, they will not get sick. They will not weaken. They will not die. From dishonor to glory, all of the awful effects of sin and the curse and the fall, all of those, they're removed. From weakness to power. I was remembering uh, um, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, so you, many of you know her story. She's a quadriplegic, suffered a diving accident when she was young. But she, she reflects on this, this hope, and, and you can just conceive of this through the lens of her eyes, what, what this passage and how precious these truths are. But, 
But all of us can revel in this. But listen to what she says. She says, I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness. Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone with spinal cord injury like me? Or someone who has cerebral palsy, brain injury, or who has multiple, multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who's manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power, beloved. And then he, it's from natural to spiritual. The natural body is sown. The spiritual body is raised to life. Now, he doesn't mean it goes from material to immaterial. That's not what he's saying here. It doesn't mean we'll exist in some non-physical way as, as kind of disembodied spirits. That's the whole point he's making in this chapter. That's what some of the Corinthians were believing, and that's what he's, he's arguing against. No, we, and we know this because he calls the spiritual body a spiritual body. Body always implies and refers to in scriptures a physical body. And so the spiritual body will have flesh. You will, you will, you can see it, you can touch it, you can smell it, you can put it on a scale and weigh it. It has it has mass. Our, our resurrected spiritual bodies will be actual bodies, but they will be suited for the glories of the age to come. They will be radically transformed. That's his point. And so they will be bodies that are adapted to life in which the, the Holy Spirit empowers everything and reigns over everything. That's the kind of bodies we'll have. Now, we, I know we would love, this is where our little imaginations start going crazy, and we think, what is it going to be like? And we, 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 want, we wish there was more that was told to us about the resurrection body, and there are questions we'd like answers to, and and so our curiosity just gets our minds racing. There's a uh, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. Many of you have read this and benefited from it. It's a great, it's a great book. And I love that what it does is it, it creates this expectation of a resurrection hope. But it shows that it's real. Because so many times we talk about heaven and we talk about life after death. It just is kind of ethereal, vague notions and just kind of floating spirits around. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Real bodies and he kind of, kind of lets his mind grow what that, what that might be like when you see what Scripture does say and kind of filling in some gaps. But, of course, we, we have to acknowledge that we, there's a lot we just don't know. I mean, there are all kinds of questions. We can speculate, but we just don't know. But what we do know and what is clear is that this is going to be wonderful. It will all be wonderful, whatever it's like. And so our, our hope is that, that our old bodies, again, will be raised and our resurrected bodies are going to be better gloriously transformed, fitted for eternity. Now the question then becomes, how is that possible? How is that possible? Not just possible, how is it accomplished? How is it guaranteed that this is going to be our future? The, 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 listen, the only way that the polarity, the difference between these present, physical, corruptible bodies and the heavenly bodies, the only way that's bridged is through Christ. It's through Christ, and that's where he goes. And that brings us to the 
Last thing I want to say, verses 45 to 49, this whole comparison between Adam and Jesus, it's, it's we want to trust, trust that redemption, Christ's redemption has secured our resurrection hope. Trust it. Trust that redemption has secured our resurrection hope. So where do we get this transformation? Look at me at verses 45 to 49. So he, he returns here to one of his favorite parallels. And we see this in, other, we see it in Romans 5 in particular. But this is one he's already drawn in this chapter. We go Last week we saw this in verse 22. And so it's this parallel between Adam and Jesus. He calls Jesus the last Adam. So we see in verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, quoting Genesis 2-7 with minor modifications, but the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Come back to that. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth. Let me just back up to that, verse 46, because I'm not going to linger on this later, but there's glorious hope in this, and I don't know if you caught that or not. After the natural is the spiritual. After this is that, and it's glorious. These are the words that are meant to just ring out hope. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is what he's saying. We have, we have inherited these earthly bodies from Adam who was made out of the dust of the earth. We alluded, read this earlier in the service. And so Adam is this, we talked about this last week, the first representative head for humanity. The first man created, he represents man, and he fell into sin, sin that led to death. So everybody that's born is born perishable because of Adam. That's the first Part of this. So for our bodies to be something other than perishable, there has to be another Adam. We need a last Adam. We don't just need to be identified with a created, look what he has referred to here, living being. The living being whose sin brought death. We don't just need to be identified with a living being. We need a life-giving spirit. We need Jesus. And so Jesus did perfectly what Adam could never do. That's what he's saying here. And Jesus paid the penalty of death for Adam's sin. And so he is, the, he is now the representative head who came from heaven to save his people, thus fitting us for heaven. That's the point he's making here. So here's his point. Just, listen, just as surely and as certainly as you and I have these corruptible bodies that have descended from Adam, our representative head, just as sure as that, so certainly, so surely, will we have resurrected bodies that have descended from Christ. That's what he's saying. Why? Because you can't be in Christ and not share in what is Christ's. 
Just as much as our union with Adam requires that our bodies are like his, perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural. Just as sure as that is, so our union with Christ requires that we will be raised like him, imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. All this is ours, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus. Listen, he's not, he's not, as we talked about this last week, he's not just the pattern of our resurrection. He is, but he's not just that. He is the life-giving spirit. He gives us resurrection life. He is the man of heaven whom we are of and whom we are in because of his gracious, redemptive work on our behalf. Jesus rose He died, he was buried, he rose, and we are in him, and therefore, when we die and are buried, we will rise. That's the the argument he's making in these verses. And all of this was accomplished, how? Because Jesus completely reversed the curse for us. Why do we see this? What happened? In order to save us, in order for this to be true, Jesus, the only eternally imperishable one, became perishable on our behalf. The man of heaven took on a body of dust in order that we who are made of dust might have heavenly bodies. He became like a wheat seed. Jesus says this in John chapter 12 Verse 24, Jesus uses the same analogy. This is where Paul gets the whole seed, buried, sown, raised. This is where he gets it. It's from Christ. So Jesus talking about his own death and resurrection, he's saying he, he became like a wheat seed, buried in the ground, and, and, and yet was transformed to bear much fruit. This is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's the, is he talking about himself? So Christ, the imperishable, became perishable that we, the perishable, might become imperishable. Jesus, the glorious one, the man of heaven, he became dishonored, experienced dishonor so that we, the dishonorable, might experience glory. Jesus, the all-powerful one, became weak that we, the weak, might become powerful. Jesus, who deserved life, experienced death so that we, who deserve death, might experience life. You see what he's saying? Jesus, the the man of, of heaven, made himself a man of the earth that we, the sons of Adam, the people of earth, might become people of heaven. He reverses it all. Through his death and resurrection, through the redemption that he purchased. This is how we can be, listen, this is how we can be absolutely certain. That's why I use that word, his redemption has secured this. It is is unbreakable. We have this certainty that just, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, listen, we will, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's not in question. It is not in limbo. It's going to happen. If we belong to Jesus, our future supernatural resurrection body is as good as done, just as sure as we have these physical, present, corruptible bodies. 
Christ is in us. We already have that DNA. It's an inevitability, as we talked about last week. We are like the seed that will be planted and will certainly sprout new life when he returns. And so as we were saying earlier, no, no power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck us from his hand, that, that Jesus is the one who, who commands our destiny. This is our hope. It's secure. It is not shaky. Now what does that then mean for us today? You believer in Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ and you're here and you're, this is all strange and you're not sure what we're saying about being in Christ and trusting in Jesus, we're glad you're here. I'm not going to embarrass you or single it out. Don't get squirmy. Don't, don't worry. I'm just saying if this doesn't make sense to you, talk with us. I'll just say you, everybody, we talked about this last week, you are in Adam or you in Christ. And the only way, we are all born in Adam. We are all born perishable and corruptible and sinful and under the curse of sin. And the only way to be in Christ is trusting in Jesus and what he did for you, his death, his resurrection. And you can, you can, you can move categories today by trusting in Jesus. And I implore you and invite you to do that. Jesus invites you to come and to rest in him. He, is, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die. Even though he dies, yet shall he live. And you can live today. And so trust in Jesus. But, but if you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, what, what, what does this mean for us now? How does the hope and the beauty of this resurrection promise, how might it show up in a person's life? I'm going to give you an example, and it's going to be kind of a biblical reference, an example. Something in the Lord's providence, I kind of, a path I ended up down later in this week. And turn to Hebrews 11. So turn there with me, still with me. Turn to Hebrews 11, just real quick, and then we're going to sing. Hebrews 11, this is that well-known chapter in the book of Hebrews, you know, we, the, the kind of the hall of faith, or we call it, or this roll call of the faithful. Hebrews 11, oh, this passage is loaded with these examples of people, men and women, who were faithful to God. But listen, I think most of you understand this. To, to better understand Hebrews 11, though, it's important to understand the, the main theme of Hebrews and the, the structure of the whole book of Hebrews. And so the overall point of Hebrews is introduced very clearly in chapter 1, and it's essentially this, is Jesus is the one who is superior to everything and everyone. He is greater than all. He is greater than all individuals. He is greater than all institutions. He has no rival. That's the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews. And so when we look at Hebrews 11, the, the, the key implication of this passage is not what you need to do is emulate the faithfulness of these people. That's not, that's not, the, that's not the main headline here. There are things we can learn and, and, and through their examples for sure. But it's not be like Enoch, be like Noah, be like Abraham. That's not what we're to take away primarily. Rather, we're meant to see that even their incredible faithfulness, it pales compared to the faithfulness of Christ. Jesus is greater. He's better. I don't know what you found. Jesus Christ. All right. Notifications were off, I thought. With this in mind... <laughs> So keep that in mind. Again, we can sometimes read this passage through that lens. That's not the intention. With this in mind, let's, we can better understand this chapter. So look down at verse 33 and 34. He, he, I'm jumping mid-sentence. But who, these men who through faith conquered kingdoms, 
Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put forward armies to flight. Now this text is alluding to numerous accounts, but certainly the story of Daniel and his three friends with King Nebuchadnezzar and, and again, other wonderful successes are alluded to here. But again, if the overall theme of the book isn't kept in mind when we come to a passage like that, the implication of these two verses may seem somewhat moralistic. Just, just, we, we may think, these people had amazing faith. And therefore, whenever I'm in the lion's den of, of life, we find ourselves in those moments, then I simply just need to show faith like these men, and God will certainly deliver me. I've heard these Sermons preached along those lines from this passage, not in this church. But, but, but when, listen, when God saves us from the lion's dens of life, and he does, it's easy to give credit to our own faith. We can look inside of ourselves and you believed, you trusted, good job. But what happens? What happens when there is no immediate deliverance? What happens when we die? What happens when it gets worse? The answer in this passage lies in the power of the resurrection. This, is, this was mind-blowing to me, and I, maybe I, I hope I can communicate it. Listen, if we hang on to the fact of the resurrection, the hope of resurrection, we can face anything. We can know peace in the midst of incredibly Incredibly difficult circumstances. I don't say any of this to minimize the reality of the difficulties that we walk through. But when the reality and the hope of the resurrection is in fact the foundation of our lives, we can, we can know peace. We can know joy. We can know hope. How do we know this? The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, next verses, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Why? So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in sheep's in, in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. If there is no concept of what the writer of Hebrews says of a better life, referring to resurrection life, if that doesn't exist, then we have no, no way of facing ex excruciating circumstances that come our way. We would, we would be able to handle them only to the extent that we are spared these kinds of awful outcomes. Now, this is background to these verses here, I think. But Hebrews, many, many believe, Bible scholars believe, this is a summary of what actually happened in Jewish history about 200 years before Christ. It's kind of a summary statement in Hebrews 11. But during the Maccabean period, there's a story found in an apocryphal book. And so Second uh, Maccabees is not part of Scripture at all. But this is, it does help us give a window into this time of history and Jewish history. And in the book of Second Maccabees, there's this story that's 
uh, related to, relates in probably a true story of seven sons and a mother and um, Antiochus Epiphanes, the emperor. And so the emperor demanded that these, these seven sons denounce their faith in Yahweh. Death was the only other option. And so the mother, she, as it's recorded, she's encouraging her sons to stand firm in their faith. And so this brutal dictator, he, he prepares this, this, for their execution, this boiling cauldron of water, this cauldron of boiling water, and, and he's ready to kill whoever won't denounce their faith in the Lord. And so one by one, the sons have the opportunity to renounce their faith, and one by one, the sons go to their death. And as each son is killed, one by one, the mother refuses to renounce her faith in the Lord. And she continues to encourage her sons to stand strong in their faith. How was she able to endure this kind of pain and suffering? How would she face death like that? What sustained her? The hope of resurrection life. And it's recorded there in this historical account. To, to the last son, she says this, Don't be afraid of this butcher. Give up your life willingly so that by God's mercy I may receive you back with them at the resurrection. This is before the New Testament's written. But the writer of Hebrews, I think, is picking up on this. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That phrase, a better life, it's literally... A better resurrection. What's a better resurrection? It's the, it's, the, it's the future bodily resurrection of all genuine believers because of the past, past death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the fruit born from Jesus, John 12, that seed who died and was buried and raised again on our behalf. That's the better resurrection. Knowing there is a better resurrection sustained this mother to live and, and her sons to live courageously in the face of death. She knew that one day they would be raised and transformed, soul and body, never to die again. And I use that just as an illustration to show you what I, the implications of this verse for us now. And I, I don't have time to work all of these out, but just listen. It matters. This truth, this hope, it matters. This is why Paul's laboring so hard to make this clear for them. It matters for your comfort in the face of suffering right now. It matters for your joy in the midst of your sorrows. It matters for your courage when you're surrounded by opposition. It matters for your hope in times of despair. So this is what he's saying. You see, see the echo of resurrection hope in creation. Marvel at this glorious prospect of transformation that's coming. And listen, that's not, that's not up for grabs. No, it's not, it's not a possibility. It's a certainty. And so trust that resurrection hope is absolutely secure because Christ's re redemption is absolutely complete. And so we need that truth today. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us each one of us individually as believers in Christ and all of us together as a church body, that together we would fix our eyes on Jesus. 
Christ who died, who was buried, who rose again on the third day, who has ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Fix our eyes on him. Draw us near to him. That, that res, that, that, so that resurrection hope might be ours today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.